don't walk, you don't try. It's a first to the vibe. Leave me on my bed. Yeah, yeah, of course you are on SAFM. Make no mistake about that. That's what happens when there are young people in the room. There's nobody in the studio. Not the producers, not the technical producer, not the host, not the guest over the age of 40. With one or two exceptions, uh, it will soon very change, yeah? I mean, it's obvious when Brafini is not here, we are in every sense the youth group. Good evening, everybody. Welcome to SAFM. We certainly do appreciate your patronage this evening. I am out of breath because Professor Nick Spall, Associate Professor in the Economics Department at Stellenbosch University and part of the Research on Socioeconomic Policy, that's the RESEP group, it was his song choice. But if ever I had to, I will dedicate that song to three of my newfound best friends. Lina Lukele, Jerry Mabena, and Ben Nokaneng. Now, crazy doesn't begin to define the evening I had in the lead-up to all of this. Suffice to say, when you are in the company and presence of a Jerry, expect that there will be a couple of Toms in between. They're not least among them, Madiba's grandson, Sello Hatank. 2010 is the time. Professor Nick Spall, good evening, sir. Thank you so much for your time. Welcome to SAFM. Thanks for having me. Can I read your profile? The very, very abbreviated version of... Skim, skim. Quick, quick sticks. Nick Spall is an associate professor in the economics department at Stellenbosch University and part of the Research on Socioeconomic Policy group in the department. Nick's research centers on education policy in South Africa with a focus on inequality and early grade literacy and numeracy. Nick has held visiting fellowships at Oxford University, oh, sorry, at Stanford University in the US <laughs> and the OECD in Paris and is currently a non-resident fellow at RISE as well as the Center for Global Development, that's the CGD. In 2019, Nick co-edited South African Schooling, The Enigma of Inequality together with Professor Jonathan Janssen who holds a professorship extraordinaire in the education department at Marty's. In 2021, he was awarded the Royal Society's Meiring Nordia Medal, as well as the National Research Foundation's P rating. Now, P rating is the highest rating possible for researchers under the age of 35. During the COVID pandemic, Nick initiated the National Income Dynamics Study Coronavirus Rapid Mobi Survey. He's going to tell us what that is. Nick also regularly comments in the media and advises numerous high-level policymakers and philanthropists in the country and, of course, abroad. He's young, he's fresh, he's got the energy to match. More than that, the thinking that, if deployed in part, could take us to our promised land as a nation. I'm not going to ask questions, Nick. Tell me a bit more. Embellish everything that I've read and what keeps you awake at night. I mean, I read education, I read inequality. And these are the things that many South Africans not only identify, but would love to see through education, the establishment of equality in many respects, and so really create a better society, the kind of society we all know we should have and are capable of having. Mm. But for whatever reason, we are not there. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so I think maybe it's worthwhile touching on the book that you mentioned that I edited with Jonathan, uh, which is about inequality. And I think that was something that really hit me hard growing up. Um, as a white person who was born under apartheid, I was born in Durban. I went to DPHS and then went to DHS and went to UKZN for my undergrad. Um, 
and have relatively what we would consider middle-class parents. Um, both of them were employed and was just struck very early by how unequal the country was and felt guilty for a long time because of this. And that's sort of, I think, what ended up leading me into education. Um, and even against that modest background, open, close quote, you were largely the exception as opposed to the rule in the South African context. Well, in the beginning, I wanted to be super rich, right? I mean, sure. I, I wanted to be a billionaire. I wanted to own yachts and islands. I had a, a folder on my computer. And about, you still do, surely. <laughs> no, I, I had literally a folder on my computer about like, how do you like buy an island? Where do you buy it? How do you get fresh water onto the island? How do you get the people that are on the island off the island? Um, getting big yachts, the whole thing. Mm. And I think only in hindsight now can look at that as being with therapy and insights and self-awareness that actually this is about being bullied at high school. It's about growing up and being gay and coming out and having to deal with the church and all of these different kinds of things. And that the way to deal with that, it feels like, um, is, is not going to get solved by getting rich and powerful. And I think that that realization, which came in my sort of early 20s, guided me into education and definitely haven't looked back. I mean, I'm very happy with the choice. Um, I know quite a lot of very rich people that are super depressed and sad and some that are super happy. I don't think just because you're rich makes you sad, but I'm, I love what I do. I find it super exciting. There's loads of doors that have opened. What do you do? Um, so I do research is one thing. I supervise students. I teach. Uh, I advise philanthropies. There's a lot of uh, people say, oh, academic is, being an academic isn't it boring. A lot of it is actually about being like an academic entrepreneur. You have ideas. You have yeah, yeah. projects that you want to fund. Completely you have to related. find people that want to fund it. You have to make it sexy. You have to sell it. You have to kind of package it. There's a whole lot of things that are involved in academia that I think the crusty person in the academic ivory tower uh, is not a good description of what academics are or can be. Uh, so this Nidscram example that you gave, um, I mean, we saw the COVID pandemic coming from the north. Uh, people in India and in Italy um, and in parts of Europe, this was already widespread, right? And we could see it coming. And we knew that the South African policymakers would be flying blind. They wouldn't have any way to make a decision about which programs to institute, what was going to happen to hunger, to unemployment, etc. So we implement, we said we needed to run this nationally representative telephonic survey, which is this NIDSCRAM study. National Income Dynamics Study Coronavirus Rapid Mobi Survey. Yeah, which built on an existing study that was done by a soldier at UCT called NIDS, National Income Dynamics Study. And within the space of like, I think it was like two or three months, it was like a complete whirlwind in my mind of like 5 a.m. to 9 p.m. work, sleep, rinse and repeat. Um there's about 40 academics that were involved. We wrote 65 papers in less than a year um, on everything, hunger, unemployment, education, uh, mental health. And all of this we fed directly into the presidency, had meetings with the head of the program management office uh, within the presidency, lots of policies. But I was just totally uh, reminded by why South African policymaking and academic space is so special. There's so much to be depressed about in South Africa at the moment. Like it's an absolute... Uh, drama, sad, sad. shit show. Uh, it's a complete shit show in South Africa at the moment. I think it's hard to find reasons why it's not. And I think that's a really good example. Every single one of the top academics in the entire country, surveying, sampling, uh, survey design, catty, everything. I phone them, I'm like, hi, I'm doing this thing. Would you be keen to get involved? I, they're like, I'm in, I'll help. 
no one's getting paid for this stuff, but everyone just wanted to help. And and that's, I think, part of the academic spirit of like people are doing this because they really care about it. Mm. They're passionate about it and they believe that South Africa can be much better than what it is now. And I'm happy to be in that space. Those are really cool people. I work with really cool people um, that care a lot. They really give a shit about the country. Is, is, is there a way, and of course um, it is the takeover, um, we'll, we'll get Nick to be radio compliant. It's not quite yet XX rated language and content, but um, please indulge us for a moment. Um, Nick, 65 pages within a year, that's probably a record of some sort somewhere. Has there not been a legitimate critique of academia to talk to itself, talk to itself in the context of the material academia produces is inaccessible because it's tied up to the jargon of economics or science or law. And when you engage policymakers, let's assume for a moment they are conversant with those disciplines because presumably they're assumptions anyway. They carry the qualifications to be there. But against the politics of the day and everything else that they have to contemplate, those in the public service, Mm. And those like me who are in the media who have to unpack the content, deliver it in such a way that the ordinary South African can engage and have an opinion and therefore be found to be contributing, is there perhaps not a legitimate critique that says, well and good to be as enterprising as the word you've used and and to go deeply into issues and lend your experience and your brains to policy researchers and everybody else in public governance and development. Mm. But we just can't use your material because it's locked up. Mm. And that creates an asymmetry because what you write and what you know to be true is inaccessible generally for me, yeah. as it were. So I would, the answer to that from, from me is yes and no. Yes, it's true. A lot of this research that is being funded is actually funded by the government. Not all of it, but a lot of it. Uh, not just in South Africa, but internationally, particularly in high-income countries, a lot of that money is coming from governments. So there's a legitimate question of if the government is funding, it must be useful to the public. Mm. Um, I wouldn't put myself in that category. I mean, I write op-eds all the time. Hello, we're talking on radio right sure, now. Sure. <laughs> um, when we did the NIDSCRAM, we had it was the front page of the financial mail for four, five financial mails cycles, right, with academics writing in very accessible ways, mm. engaging mm. with policymakers, etc., But I also want to kind of defend the pure academics. Mm. So the people that came up with the COVID-19 vaccine Mm. that saved millions of people's lives. You don't want those people leaving their labs and having to go and now give a radio interview to explain uh, before they before they found the COVID-19, why their research is interesting. Why is it important? You really do need people that are deep in the research process to do pure research. No doubt. But I think what you're touching on is that we do need more what I would call knowledge brokers. So people that can sort of hold two different spaces. Yeah. Now you've got people high up on the mountain finding the new stuff, but you've also got the public and policymakers that are on the alluvial plains. And you need people that are in between those two groups that can broker between mm-hmm. the researchers and say, listen, guys, we can't, when we're speaking to the president, we can't add six qualifiers <laughs> and six clauses. So let's reduce the... It depends which president. Three uh, presidents ago, you could do that. He was uh, very conversant with the issues. Yeah, I mean, whether that's a good thing or not, uh, I, I'm not sure. But the you want I, what I'm saying is that you mm. sometimes need you. people that can can be the go-betweens between people that are doing pure research and people that are need to understand that and need to make decisions on it, and the public that mm. just need to be informed about it. Fantastic. Now, talking about the public, you did say something off air that I want you just to take a, an, an opportunity, and there are literally what ninety seconds. 
outrage, our society, its outrage, its complicity in some of the S show that you've made mention of, and the fact that we just accept readily. Mm. This is something that worries me at the moment in South Africa is I feel like we have become desensitized and desensitized to things that are actually moral. And we don't like using the word moral because we think that this is someone telling us you shouldn't do this. It's actually talking about sex and politics and and things like that. But actually, I think that here we have lost a sense of collective moral outrage or moral courage that you need to call out. You know, we've had the Zondo Commission. You've got four 400 page reports. The jobs for cash scandal that was like seven years ago of teachers, teacher posts that were being sold left, right and center. There were 83 cases that the Volmink Commission recommended people get prosecuted. Not a single person has been prosecuted from that. Zondo Commission, you have people who are still in ministries. They are still employed. Their names are attached to receipts. And yet, for whatever reason, there's not the sense of moral indignation that these people should resign, that they should be kicked out, that they should be removed. The Raita and ESCOM confessions in that Annika Larson interview. Totally. The ESCOM syndicate votes buying um, kids dying in pit latrines. Last oh, week. Oh, gosh, don't go there. In the Eastern Cape. The Viewpoint, 8 to 10 p.m. Flipping conventional wisdom on its head. How do we as a society, South Africa, 29 years after democracy, how do we experience continuously a decay or a lessening of the transactional value? More is being asked of you, generally speaking, for less and less. The more you are promised something, the more the promise is broken. And so, as it were, turning and turning in the widening gyra, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. And everybody knows where that is going to. It's a Chinua Achebe poem. Is it Chinua Achebe? No, it's not. Um, I'll tell you who it is now. But where the center does not hold, to the point, and, and this is the m- message you had at the end, the outrage doesn't exist if just last week we learned of a four-year-old who died in a pit latrine toilet. Eastern Cape government has, for as long as it has been a government known, it has a backlog that it ought to service in particular as it relates to public infrastructure, public schooling infrastructure, not least ablution facilities. And we know exactly what happens when that doesn't happen. There's a Michael Gomap a few years ago who lost his life at school precisely for that reason. Mm. And here we are, and I'm minded to use four-letter words just to have a sense of outrage. A four-year-old died last Mm. week, and it is the most normal thing. No outrage. It's not my daughter. It's not my niece. It's not anything that I know or anybody that I know. Let's go on. It's a child in rural Eastern Cape. Life goes on. Not important. Mm. There's a there's a quote that Thomas Piketty, so he's a very famous economist who the writes Frenchman. about yes inequality. There's a quote that he says, which I always use with my students, which is inequality in every country needs to be justified. You need to tell a story about why this level of inequality is acceptable or unacceptable. And I think that in South Africa, we need to ask ourselves not just how do these things happen? How do children die in pit latrines and we don't have the sense of outrage that we think we should? But also things like how is it okay that a million people live in shacks in Kailicha? 
in in a middle income country like South Africa where we have the you know in exact within a 30 minute drive you can get to a Michelin star restaurant and that that for me is something that I think as South Africans we haven't interrogated why this level of inequality somehow we believe the story is it that okay you know there's a there's a, a new black middle class that has now got in on the deal that under apartheid only white people could have access to that's such a good point, and, and berate me if you will. Is it not time to interrogate that? Because the signs of that, maybe, not necessarily to the full extent, but maybe how those at least with political connections or proximity to politics and the powers that were in the socioeconomic press the first administration of Madiba, which became manifest in the first administration of Mbeki the second in the democratic government, broad-based black economic empowerment and the changing face, and how you change the protagonists at the front of organizations to protect the mm. institutions that became what apartheid was built on, and the now vestiges are there, just represented by different persons. So in other words, talking about the co-option or those mm. who have bought in to act as a buffer. So <clears throat> yes and no, again, uh, it's a little bit of nuance on that one because I think, so there's two great um, uh, researchers, um, Jeremy Seekings and Nicolina Trask based at UCT, and they talk about the distributional regime, time, yeah. the distributional regime of apartheid, where you had a small group, which were whites under apartheid, that got to get access to quality schooling, quality healthcare, living in central areas, etc. And then the majority who were black under apartheid, that did not. So you had this almost two-speed system. Mm. And what they argue is that post-apartheid, it's not that the distributional regime has fundamentally changed. Mm, we have mm, the same mm, distributional mm. regime, but who has access to each of those two parts has changed. Now, the people that have access to the higher speed uh, part, the, the sort of 15, 20% of South Africa maximum, mm. probably more like 10, 15% yes. are multiracial. And it's not just BEE. Uh, it's also things like teachers, nurses, policemen. They, where are their children going? Mostly to fee charging functional schools. When you ask people that are in university, leading corporations, uh, are you assuming that, or, or is, is that research? We know, no, we do know that there's the, the the vehicles of social mobility for the black middle class. That one of those is employed parents in relatively high income paying jobs, which in South Africa, those teachers are in the top five percent of the income distribution. Um, that so, could potentially be misleading. They may very well be in the top five, but I mean, what is the value of where they are relative, for instance, to inflation and the cost of living in South Africa and the challenges that one has to, in that salary as a teacher or as a nurse, has to contemplate? And I mean, I'm not going to, I don't want to sound like a, a stuck record, but I mean, the question of where you are living is going to challenge the value of that salary against your aspirations, against what you want for your children and how all of that is costly, against also the inherent feature of majority of Africans, mm. black Africans, black tax. So that statistic on its own is very flattering, but it isn't worth much. But I do want to say this, and I'm just going to be a rhetorical point because I've got a voice note that's going to be for you. Think about this. Find me a premier who was sponsored by the ANC in the first administration who is not wealthy. Mine de Picho de Beers. Heavily invested there. Tokyo Sahuala, we'll know about him. Popomelefe, we know about him. But inequality is not about uh, 50 rich fat cats. 
inequality in South Africa, there are hundreds of thousands of people that are in that top category. It's not good enough to against, just say, how do the billionaires become billionaires? Against? Against what numbers, though? Against the 45 million people That's that are living in poverty. Exactly. So I think the interesting thing is not only to say, how did the rich 50 or 100 or 150 people get rich? It's how did the 150,000, the 500,000, the 6 million people or the 4 million people or the 7 million taxpayers that mm -hmm. we have, where did they get to? And it wasn't all through BEE. For many instances, the way that they managed to get out of poverty was actually the same way that the apartheid state managed to get poor whites out of poverty. Functional schools, functional healthcare, uh, decent paying job, get access to the property ladder. You're referring me to a conversation I once had with Flip Bass, the Arma Blanca Fra, the poor white problem or poor white question of the 1930s following on from the destitution of the Anglo-Boer world. This conversation, is, I want to get carried away. I'm enjoying it. Thank you so much for taking me where you have. Unfortunately, I have to yield the platform. This is Song Azamabed in conversation with Professor Nick Spall, Associate Professor in the Economics Department at Stellenbosch. Please get dialing 86 0032 There's no better way to introduce a conversation that I will gladly for the next half an hour yield. After the break, it's Nick. But we have to take a voice note. Hi, good evening, Songezo, and uh, your guest, Nick. I like his energy. Um, he's well-versed with his field of work. And I'd like to ask him just once, one question, or maybe or two. Where would you place yourself in South Africa? As young as you are, very intelligent, very articulate, and um, you know what you're talking about. This South Africa is going, this, this country is going south. I'm sure you know what I'm talking about. So where would you put yourself and be best of good use in salvaging this country? Because I'm jealous, your energy, I'm jealous you would be snatched by some foreign rich country and maybe utilize you for their own good. You know, um, this is Klaba from the Eastern Cape. Thank you. Klaba, fantastic. Nick is going to respond on the other side of the break when it's well and truly his show. 2032, everybody, show him love and respect. Please do participate after the break. Next ball, hashtag Tuesday Takeover. Nothing conventional on the viewpoint. I'm speaking. Okay, got you. Hi, everyone. So I'm Nick Spall, <laughs> the first attempt at uh, running a radio show. Um, and I'm going to be interviewing someone who's one of my absolute heroes. Uh, she's a, a hero in South Africa, but also a personal hero of mine. Um, her name is Veronica McKay, Professor Veronica McKay. Um, and I'm going to be asking you a bunch of different questions about her life story and history. Um, and while we're doing that, you can call in on 86 triple zero twenty thirty two to send your voice notes to 0614104107. And please keep them under one minute. Uh, or we'll just cut them off after one minute. Um, so, Veronica, are you online? Um, hello, Nick. Here I am, I think. Great. It's good to have you. Hi. Um, and yeah, strange format. I mean, we would normally be talking uh, over coffee or talking about uh, literacy and research. But for the <laughs> listeners out there, I, let me just give some context to, um, to Veronica. So she's an extremely unassuming woman. Um, I remember meeting her at a conference and I went up afterwards to her. She was talking about the DBE workbooks at the time and just asked her lots of questions. And since then, she's sort of gone to the top of my list of South African <laughs> heroes and the absolute top of the list of people that people don't actually know about. Um, so, Veronica, the three things that I wanted to chat to you about and sort of just uh, share with the rest of South Africa, because I actually know quite a few of these things, 
is you were involved in three really large uh, initiatives in South Africa. The first one was Kari Gude. Um, The second one was the DBE workbooks. And the third one was when you were dean of UNISA. Um, this yeah. this mm. sort of gigantic university, uh, <laughs> distance university in South Africa. And mm. I thought maybe let's just start, if you can give the listeners here just a short one, two-minute overview of what is Karigude. Um, you know, I, it was, I know that it's an adult literacy program. You can tell them how many people it reached, what was it, and mm. just give mm. people some context. I think a lot of people don't actually know about it. Okay. Um um, yeah, so hello, hi, hi to you, Nick, and hello to you, Songhezo. Um, yeah, the Curry Goody Literacy Campaign was a government program, um, and it, we, we started it in 2007 when we set up the plans, and um, at that point, Parliament gave us the go-ahead. Um, it was a literacy campaign for adults who had little or no schooling, um, as a result of apartheid, and it c- kind of followed on my my own history of literacy. I was involved before '94 in the National Education Policy Investigation. So, it, yeah, it was one of my my pet interests, my um, pet areas, and it was also a way as an academic to get out of that tower and to to mm. work at grassroots. We reached for. About four and a half million adults, um, about 60% more, about 68% of them were female. A quarter were, were, were considered youth, so they were below the age of 35. Um, and then about half of them were in the 35 to 59 age group, and then another quarter above that. Mm. And yes, um, and Veronica, when you say you reached them, yes. sort of, what was the program? Just what does it look like? Okay. Were they gathering? Were they doing it by themselves? What what was it? Uh, okay, um, it was a literacy program. We had to mobilise for each year, and it ran for many years. Um, we had I, I worked with it for uh, up until the end of 2011, 2012. So I was part of the setter. We needed to get volunteers who were paid a stipend to cover their costs. And we actually mobilized across South Africa um, 40,000 volunteers. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. and we should get we, you to run an election. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, at that stage I would have won. Um, and then each of the um, volunteers had to um, enroll about 18 to 20 learners. And we, were, we more or less reached close to 600,000 learners um, each year. It was a very structured program. Um, from uh, from a teaching point of view, where we designed lesson plans for each lesson, um, we actually designed the worksheets for each lesson. The themes were were based on those days on the Millennium Development Goals, mm. um, and the, and now would match the Sustainable Development mm. Goals. They did mother tongue, so we were almost like the first to start a whole campaign of mother tongue literacy. And I had some really big names helping me with with the African languages. They, um, we did numeracy, so the learners all got number concepts and then basic mathematic functions. Up to they did it, the program ran for about you know, for about six or seven months, and in that um, during that time we got our adult learners to the level of a grade three um, yeah. that they could then move on. 
Um, so we had life skills, mother tongue, and then um, by popular demand, of course, learners always wanted English. So we had a component of, of English, and then every learner was assessed. Um, we used a, a, a very nice user-friendly, mm. learner-friendly assessment. It was a portfolio of 20 activities that they did in um, in language and in maths. Yeah, and, 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 and Veronica, yeah. I mean, mm. I remember, uh, I mean, these numbers are just astounding, right? Mm. 40,000 mm. volunteers, 600,000 students a year, 5 million people mm. in the end that we're doing mm -hmm. it. I remember I sort of asked you for advice once when I was developing a budget and I was sort of a bit sheepish mm. about asking for, I think mm. it was 7 million rand for something. And you <laughs> joked at the time, and not a lot of people maybe have this uh, th this insight into you. You said, no, I don't get out of bed for less than uh, 15 million rand. Um, uh, as yeah, in all right. of these, was, uh, <laughs> all of no, these different Nick, projects. Yeah. Am, I, am I misremembering? Yeah. yeah. Nick, it was numbers. Not, oh, oh, uh, ten, maybe it was 10 million age. people. Yeah. No, I, or 10 yeah, million I don't students, get so. out of bed for less than 20,000 learners. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I think the question I've got for you there, yeah. uh, Veronica, is, you mm. know, you've done so many of these. The other one, massive one, was the DBE workbooks where... Now, mm. I think it's 9 million children in South Africa get access yes. to those books, multiple mm. books for um, mm. for home language, for English, for mathematics, for life skills. Mm. Uh, and it is, this has been going on for more than 10 years. We spent billions of rands of government money and you were at the head of developing that. And I'm just mm. sort of one of the questions I have is sort of what do you tell yourself when you get daunted? Like, do you ever get daunted by these massive, massive, massive programs and campaigns? Okay, my, my joke is I don't get out of bed for fewer than 20,000 learners. You know, I, I grew my, my, my academic career um, has been at UNISA um, yeah, for, more, for more years than I care to mention. And we became so accustomed to big numbers um, and to economies of scale uh, yeah, and, and to working um, with large numbers. The numbers aren't the issue. I think for me, the issue is the preparation, the planning, the preparation, um, and always knowing that every mistake you make is a mistake to scale. So mm -hmm. uh, that that kind of that that's what um, is I find daunting to to troubleshoot to to try to get all the bugs out to make sure that once you roll it out to scale that you, you don't get 400,000 yeah. um, queries yeah. because you, you, you'll just die. You won't manage with the queries. Yeah. So, <laughs> and mm. and Veronica, the sort of these things take a long time, right? I mean, even mm. UNISA, the DBE workbooks, uh, Curry Gude, mm. as much as it's sort of the development was very much fast tracked. I mean, you had six months or two, uh, I think it was a year mm. before that first DBE workbooks had to be developed. But how do you mm. stay so patient and sort of in it for the long haul? I mean, these are really long term programs that have been running. DBE workbooks, more mm. than a decade. Curry Gude was multiple years. UNISA, you were mm. there for, as you say, a lot longer than you care to remember. Um, <laughs> How do you stay so patient and kind of committed to this in, in the long haul? Yeah, I, I, Nick, I suppose every day is exciting. Every step of the, 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 the road, the roadmap is exciting. So with the workbooks, it was exciting to come up with a concept um, and then to pull in all the African language writers. I worked on the English books to have, you know, to, to build that mm. team. I think that we... Um, we infect each other with excitement. It, it, it was just so exciting to see it go and to grow. Um, and we were very fortunate because although 
the first year was rushed, that we considered that first year of the workbooks um, mm. as a pilot. And, and we were able to get feedback from teachers, feedback from, from schools and from the kids in schools. We, we actually did interview um, learners as well. And there were other studies that gave us... And, and each year we were able to improve on them. And, you know, yeah. digital printing, you know how easy it is. Yeah, to make the edits. But it sounds like, I mean, you said it there, Veronica, the sort of, and it's one of my own mantras, it's the sort of like, you actually have to create your own excitement. Uh, you can't be waiting for other people to make you excited about your own life. Uh, and if you're waiting, you might wait forever. Uh, and they never get excited and die depressed and sad. <laughs> so I, I think I, I'll take that. I'll definitely take that one on board that, uh, you know, even someone that's a little bit further down the road, you, um, that the fact that you can still find excitement in uh, in the everyday. So there is, I'm seeing a f screen flashing at me that's telling me we've got a caller, uh, Mike in Newlands. Um, but this is the, I'll, I'll give the numbers for the people that want to phone in. Uh, I'm your guest for the evening. This is Tuesday Takeover. Um, the number to call is 86 32 uh, and send your voice notes to 0614-104-107 and keep them under a minute. Uh, but we're going to cut to Mike in Newlands, uh, who's calling in. Uh, Mike? Hi, good, good evening, Nick. Can you hear me? Yes. Nick, good evening. Good evening to you and your guest. And uh, yeah, I want to refer to the voice note earlier. You know, I love the energy. Uh, you have lots of it. Mm -hmm. and, and I also want to ask the question, why are you still here? It's so encouraging um, that you, 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 you work, Nick, uh, against uh, unbelievable odds. Uh, I look at our education system today, um, and, and it is just shocking. Um, I know that you wrote uh, the 2023, I think it was a background report to the reading panel, and essentially what you did in that report was you just said our country is going backwards, and it's going backwards in the fundamental unit of education and literacy. So now my question to you is this. Nick, how, how are we going to go forward? We have, an, uh, we have a government that puts people into the education and run education. Let's take Andrew Matseki, for example, who was MEC for education. I, <laughs> I remember very well saying when she was out in the street, she'd rather be campaigning for the ANC, which is much more important than education. And then they promptly made her the Minister of Education. We have something like about a million children into grade one. And I, I'm not sure this is correct. But I read that only about 43,000 passed with maths at 50% plus. I'm not going to talk about the, the fact that half of them drop out and what are left can't read for meaning. What I want to know from you, Nick, and your guest, Veronica, is how are you going to overcome the ANC that seems to think that ideology comes before education? I, 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 just in conclusion, Panyan Zalusufi, before he became Premier, was running a campaign and he wanted to introduce, and I don't know if he succeeded, the Bela Act. This was his idea of controlling and removing the power of the parents away uh, from the school and giving it to the government. Mm. Uh, the onslaught, quite frankly, from the ANC against education, um, and I've experienced, by the way, the product of ANC education when I was uh, writing unit standards for a CETA for 10 years, um, is just appalling. Sure. How are we going to overcome that, Nick? How are, we, uh, how are you? Yeah. Because I feel that every turn you make, you've got a government that is fighting you. On, and, and it's just shocking that our education system has really, yeah. quite frankly, uh, for the next couple of generations, 
it's going to be difficult to recover. Yeah. Thank you very much. Thanks, Mike. Um, and Veronica, I'm also going to ask you the first question there of why you're still here, but I think I'll answer it first. Um, I think that, so, I mean, there's no doubt that South Africa is in a really rough patch at the moment. I think on a lot of different fronts, um, politically, economically, socially, across the board, educationally. But I think the reason why I'm still here, I would say is, I, I it sounds quite like a woo-woo, but I feel like doing work on South African education for me is part of the reason why I'm here. It's a vocation. It's a calling. It's not just like this is a great job opportunity and I can get a better job opportunity in London or New York or whatever. Um, I think that going with something that you feel called to do gives you meaning and purpose and energy that chasing a career doesn't. Um, I, I, your second question about the sort of how you're going to overcome the ANC, I don't think that's the right question. I mean, the ANC is the democratically elected political party that the majority of people in this country want to lead them. And we have elections to change that. Uh, and if at the next election, most South Africans say that they don't want that and change their votes and we have coalition politics and all sorts, that's how we change it. We don't change it by sort of subverting or trying to uh, work around elections. Elections are the format and the process that we move forward as a country. And we still have a free press. We still have an independent um, media and a judiciary. I think there are lots of things that if you focus on only the negative sides and there are lots of things to focus on, you probably will immigrate. Um, but I have an amazing quality of life in South Africa and feel extremely privileged to do the work that I do. And to have influence and to talk to people, a lot of people in government are actually open to hearing and to tr taking stuff on board. And they're really good people that are in government. I mean, Veronica, the person I'm talking to right now uh, was in government for a very long time and managed to do lots of good things um, that really affect literally millions of people. Um, so, yeah, I think that there, there is a choice that you make about whether to be depressed, angry and sad. I'm not saying be ignorant. I read the news. I'm very well aware of all of the stuff and get very angry. But when you have the choice of being angry or depressed, uh, I always choose being angry because I think it gives you energy. Um, and it does for me anyway. But Veronica, what's your answer to the why are you still here well, question? Um, okay. My, uh, and I could easily not be here. Uh, my husband's British South African or South African Brit. Um, he spends most of his life at Oxford, Cambridge, Imperial College. And we both choose to be here. Um, he's at WITS to make our contribution. Mm -hmm. um, we are privileged. Um, we, I, I do see it as a calling and as a vocation. Um, and I have, I've spent many years in government. There are, I, I'm often humbled by, by the commitment, um, but somehow, yeah, uh, we know the challenges. We're not naive, but we, we are here. Yeah. And I think that the my hope is that over this coming changing sort of cycles of change, that the balance of forces within government also shifts towards the people that are already in government that are extremely ethical, competent, hardworking people. Um, and that some of the roadblocks that are in place uh, do get removed. Uh, and I think there's some evidence of that. Um, I remember reading this recent, uh, there was a, an overview by J.P. Lundman of the progress that's been made by the NPA. I think it was the end of last year. Um, and that's also really useful to have as a reference point that, you know, while the, the wheels of justice turn extremely slow, they also grind very finely. And we do have people that are being prosecuted. Um, I see we've got another caller uh, from Colesburg, KGM. Um, maybe we can get his question as well. 
good evening uh, good evening to your guest uh, and to my fellow listeners um Nick, allow me to put a spanner on on the works. Sure. Um, fortunately, I've I've followed a bit of your work for for quite some time, particularly as a as a Kryptonian. Here's my my issue, my bone of contentions. Um, I, I feel I was listening to you attentively. You talked to the issues of accountability as an example. As, as a country that has a rich terrible history, if you like, a mixed bag of history. When exactly do we start with this accountability? I mean, as somebody who participated at CODESA, and may I have a disclaimer, I'm apolitical. Um, I don't believe in, in a political system, um, whether it be it the one governing us now or elsewhere, uh, particularly here in, in, in the continent. When you look at the kind of uh, structure that was put in place through the process like CODESA and, and then the TRC and, and just the, the knowledge of me and you as, as compatriots, how do we begin to cry foul? And I'm not justifying any wrongdoing by anybody. But if we say post-94, these are the problems... And, and people haven't been prosecuted and the likes. Yet, we have pre-94 atrocities, mm. injustices, systematic injustice, may I add, that has led to this, and I'm not condoning what the current politician is doing. Mm. Now, as, as, as a parting shot, let's get to academics. We have this system producing... Uh, the, well, let's call it mass production in my view, which some of them cannot even put a, a proper sentence or English sentence together or business in English, if you like, or business language, if you like. And these are the people that are expected to be uh, employed and, and so that the country can be productive. But they're produced by this academic, or rather educational system that we know it is never, it was never structured to the benefit of the majority of the people of this country. You know, you being a professor, somebody being a doctor, and the list goes on, and we come to the radio and we talk as we do. When you look at the livelihood of people, pre and post, it tells, it talks to the system that we are using that we seem to be saying it's working when we're not, mm. not working. I wish we had a lot of time. But thanks for taking my call nonetheless. Thanks. Thanks, KJM. I think the point you raised there about accountability and sort of saying we have this very mixed bag of history and where do we start is a is a profound one. Um, because there's a mixture of saying there are wrongs that were made in the past that still linger. And I actually think do influence the way this, that the wrongs happen now are perpetrated. So the, uh, it's our time to eat logic. Um, has actually come, I think, in part from this idea of justice and a sort of informal, we will take our, um, we will take, it's our time to eat. But I want to, uh, before I take the last two calls, um, I want to just read out this one quote, um, which is a maybe a 30 second quote, which I think summarizes a lot of what I think around this in terms of justice. Justice requires not only the ceasing and desisting of injustice, but also requires either punishment 
or reparation for injuries and damages inflicted for prior wrongdoing. The essence of justice is the redistribution of gains earned through the perpetration of injustice. If restitution is not made and reparations not instituted to compensate for prior injustices, those injustices are in effect rewarded, and the benefits such rewards conferred on the perpetrators of injustice will continue to draw interest, to be reinvested, and to be passed on to their children, who will use their inherited advantages to continue to exploit the children of the victims of the injustice of their ancestors. Consequently, injustice and inequality will be maintained across the generations, as will their deleterious social, economic, and political outcomes. And I think that touches on something, which is that we haven't managed to institute justice for the past. We also have not managed to institute justice for the wrongs that are happening now in March 2023 around corruption. And this is the lack of moral courage and moral indignation uh, that I think we need to find a way to get access to, because at the moment it's really lacking. So our last two uh, last two callers, uh, we've got Gonde uh, in Cape Town uh, and Monasilo in Kronstadt. I think let's take both of those. If you guys can just keep your comments really short. I'm getting waves from the internal people here, <laughs> which I'm assuming that that's what that means. Um, Gonde? Okay, I'll try and be very quick. Hmm. Uh, Prof, in 94, when we had our elections, immediately there was an RTP program which to me was based on James Maynard Haynes, not Milton Friedman, all right? It appears to me, had that been followed through, we would not be having this discussion, right? Mm. Whereby we've got inequality. At one stage, we were the most unequal country in the world, something at 0.68, you know, at that time. So... Just because of time, what is your view? What would have happened to our country, South Africa, had we continued with RTP? Because it was unceremoniously abandoned in '96 mm. with the influence of the IMF, World Bank, OECD, and we counted well, if you like, you know, to accept the program that is not suitable for South Africa. Do yeah. of time, I'll have to end it there. Thank, uh, thanks, Tone. Um, Monasilo, I'm also going to take your question and I'll answer them both. Uh, good evening. Yes. My, my, my uh, question is this. Pre-1994, some of us did join matriculation board of the universities of South Africa, and some did uh, senior certificate. And we never, we did mathematics, we did uh, physical science, and you remember, but we never uh, did anything. We, we, our marks were never below, below 45. We could not pass below 45. Now, what is the legacy that we, our children are being left with if they have to pass with 35% or 20% and then uh, we expect them to be fluent in English, to, 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 to go and become technicians and engineers? Why did we not stick with uh, those curriculums that gave us uh, the 
senior certificate, higher higher senior certificate, as well as joint matriculation board of the. Um, I insist on the joint matriculation board of the university because I did that, and I, I and I am of the opinion that that was the best type of education we received as black people. It, it has brought up people like uh, Abu. Dr. Mangani, the first physicist in, 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 mm. in, in South Africa. So uh, I, I just want to, to find out from you, what's the opinion about them bringing in these OBEs and all this and that has messed up our children? I rest my case. Thanks. Um, thanks, Monasilo. Um, so I think that the just a very quick answer because we're going to cut. I actually cut. I'll actually explain after the break. Um, so we need to cut to the news now. So this is the Tuesday takeover. Um, my guest is Veronica McKay. Who I'm going to carry on speaking to uh, after the 9 p.m. news, um, and we're going to cut over to the newsroom with Greg, uh, Greg Kroos, uh who's standing by. The viewpoint weekdays 8 to 10 p.m. on SAFM. Hi everyone, I'm Nick Spall, uh, your Tuesday Takeover guest this evening, and my guest is Prof. Veronica McKay. Uh, we're wrapping up now, um, some guys want the show back. Um, but just to answer those two questions that came in, one about what happened if we continued with the RDP, I think that as a South African government and society, we do often stop programs that before we know um, whether they're working, and even when we do know that they're working, we stop good programs. There was an example of this uh, in Khateng, the GPLMS program that was also stopped early. And then the second question from Monasilo about chasing pass rates, uh, 50%, 45%, 30%, etc. And I do think it's a problem that we focus too much attention on the matric results uh, and chasing those pass rates instead of looking at the roots behind the quality of education that we have, which is the fact that 80% of kids don't learn to read in the first three years of school. Um, but Prof. Uh, McKay, Veronica, uh, in one minute, just to wrap up, I thought that the question I would ask you is what advice would you give to the people in South Africa that are thinking about leaving and, and throwing in the towel? Um, my son has left, so I wasn't able to persuade him to stay. <laughs> um, but, I, you know, I, I think that... Um, from from an academic point of view and as an academic we have such a there's so many possibilities for us mm. for research for working for making a, a contribution and I, yeah i do think that if one wants to make a contribution we can stay my son having left works for the world food program for united nations so he has other opportunities mm. of making a contribution but I really feel that there's a lot we can do and we, we, we can't afford to lose capacity. Yeah. Thanks, Veronica. And I think you're, I mean, you are the inspiration. You're the example of what is possible to do uh, if you get your hands dirty and are willing to roll with the punches, understand how the political <laughs> system works. Um, and I have a huge amount of respect. So thank you for joining me. Thank um, you, Nick. Yeah. Thanks, Veronica. So, Songezo, over to you. Thanks for letting me use your radio station for a while. Mama Veronica, thank you very much for your time. 
Um, mm. You're not about to go into radio retirement because now that we know you exist, be very sure you shall be fielding a specific mm, call thank to you. you. I, uh, thank you so much, um, Songezo. Thank you. We certainly um, do appreciate program. your time. And, and yeah, I'm so committed. I don't, you know, I don't want to go. Uh, Nick, that's my answer. I love being here. Good. I love the work. I love the people. Good. Yeah. If I get pissed off and depressed, I'll give you. I'll send you a WhatsApp message. I have. I'm now going to look for somewhere to bath because we have no water. <laughs> uh, very apt. Cheers. Yeah. Go well, ma'am. Cheers. Nick and I will Bye. be knocking Thank on your you. door very soon Good. for coffee and okay. more of these conversations. <laughs> Okay, take care, both of you. Bye. Take care, ma'am. The time is twenty one zero nine. I'm going to abuse you for another three or four minutes here, Nick. The there, there, there seems to be a legitimate concern if I just engage that question of justice, or rather that quotation of justice. You know, where you are sitting right now, one Dumisan Sebeza, SC, who's now a judge of the African Court of Human Rights, said something along these lines. And this is somebody who was a commissioner at the TRC. Not only should the work of the TRC not ended, certainly not when it did, if it needed to end. But beyond that, its scope ought to have been evolved because here now we're in conversation about some of the issues that continue to bedevil the country that we are living in, not necessarily because of issues that are born of now, but carried burdens that have become now rooted even in today's society that ought to have been attended to earlier on. And I'm thinking now that quotation of justice only because it, I relate with it more readily as a lawyer. How, how do we have the conversation? I want to say something potentially even outrageous. There is a genuine view, I think, that because we are 30 years post-apartheid, mm. that it is indeed time to forget. And... And the more what happens now in South Africa in the democratic setup and all the failures that are the cause for the sense of despondency, in particular among young people and South Africans at large, a lot of the wrong that happened pre-'94 is almost inconsequential against what problems we are dealing with now. And many people even justified against the malaise of now. Yeah. That dichotomy shouldn't be made. No. I'd, I agree with you. I think that um, they're linked. Those two things are linked. Um, the way I would think about it is that w the reason why we are in a stuck place is that the person that we need to stand up and say that we need justice and that there will be no peace without justice. Mm. There will be no long-term, sustainable, prosperous peace without some kind of justice that has not yet been fully served. Who has the moral standing to say that? Not the ANC, not the president, not Julius Malema, definitely not the DA. We don't have examples of people that have the moral courage and the moral standing to, to stand up and rebuke the, the absolute, it's insane, the levels of inequality that we have in South Africa. That you have people dying in pit latrines and then we have people drive, driving 5 million rand sports cars and wearing breakling watches. In a society of 60 million people, where the youngest person is born now and on average the oldest sane and quite willing to contribute person who's 80 years of age, is there nobody who can speak with a sense of authority that lands and resonates with the people to engage the society that we are now? 
it's not that there's nobody it's that there's nobody in the political domain you need someone okay. that can get people to crowd around them um and and change the system you don't change the system by just standing on a platform in a church uh, and shouting at the top of your lungs you have to assemble people politically uh behind a particular um behind particular issues and particular programs behind what would it look like to have a wealth tax what would it look like to have a basic income grant all of those things are highly specific technical things that would also need where does the money come from and how do we know that it's not just going to be a new form of corruption and eating at the trough Nick Howers Radio, the producers are asking me to ask you that question. Howers Radio. <laughs> radio is nice. Radio is cool. Radio is good. It's nice to, to hear people phone in and, and ask questions. Shall we go to James Blake, another song choice of yours? Yes. Yeah, so this is the second song choice. I was asked to bring two songs. And the first one was the, um, the Bugalo song that we started with, which I really like. And this is a much sadder song um, called When We're Older. But I think it's actually maybe apt. Um, to end our conversation. Speak for yourself, mate. 21.13 is the time. That was Professor Nick Spall from Stellenbosch University. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks.